Hi, and welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. We have a very special guest, Henri Pierre Jacques. But before introducing him, it's worth noting that this podcast takes place a week and a half after the murder of George Floyd. Our sympathies goes to the Floyd family, peaceful protesters, and law enforcement. We are appalled against the brutal acts committed towards George Floyd and many others like him, whose stories have been lost in the shadows of injustice. We hear the thousands of well-intentioned, peaceful protesters who are rightfully disgruntled by the systemic racism inherent in our country, an injustice that certainly goes beyond the death of these individuals. Since the emergence of COVID-19, we've seen racism polarized across our system as many black and brown communities have struggled to access relief funds or healthcare to withstand and survive this health crisis. We recognize that today's issues are a symptom of much deeper causes, racism, injustice, and oppression. I believe that for change to occur, we each must find our niche and relentlessly push for change. Our unique positions as leaders and contributors of companies dedicated to growing minority-owned businesses and fostering financial inclusion provide us with both the opportunity and the responsibility to create change. I believe VCs and fintechs are vehicles that can drive financial inclusion and equality for all, something we like to call at Camino Financial Fundamental Fairness. Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about bridging the gap between fintech and financial inclusion. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. So I'd like to introduce you to our speaker today, Henri Pierre Jacques. And one, Henri is a managing partner and co-founder of Harlem Partners, a New York-based early stage venture firm on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship by primarily investing in minorities and women founders. Their goal is to invest in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. Woo, that's awesome. Henri also has previous experience in private equity at ICV Partners and investment banking at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And it's worth noting that Henri and I share a very similar path. Not only did we do investment banking and thereafter worked at ICV Partners, so for the same firm, but we also went to HBS and effectively used that as a launch pad to really 10x our ventures in the case of Henri Harlem Capital Partners. He's been able to partner in this journey with his partner at Harlem, Jared. Both of them are marvelous individuals and I really you know, have a lot of gratitude for them to quite frankly be a voice for a very just cause. And last, I wanna note that Henri has received the Forbes 30 Under 30, Inc. 30 Under 30, Ebony Power 100, The Root 100, Business Insiders Rising Star, Cranes New York Rising Star, HBCU VC 31 Under 30 Awards, and boy, he's just getting started. So without further ado, Henri, that was a long intro, but I think it merits a long intro given your voice and during these difficult times. So thank you very much for joining me. No, appreciate it. I've never heard anyone actually rattle off the list of awards. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. And I'm going to be the first of many, my friend. So let's get started. How do you feel right now? How do current events reinforce Harlem Capital's mission? Yeah, I feel like before, during COVID, you would get on a call and people would ask, you know, I hope, how are you doing? Where are you? And now when they ask that question, it just feels differently. So I think, you know, it feels like we've been in a constant state of trauma for the past two, three months, especially for us here in New York, uh, just given the magnitude of, of what COVID was doing and how serious people were taking it. And it feels like now, like COVID is kind of a side piece, even though it's, you know, one of the largest killings of Americans in the history of the country. Mm-hmm. So that's also, you know, this weird feeling of there's these riots going on, COVID's still going, do I wear a mask or not wear a mask? But, you know, I, I put out a poem over the weekend, that's kind of how I express my voice. I do deaf poetry on the side. And so oh, wow. for me, that was like what I wanted to do and how I felt like I was, it was more for myself than it was for others. 
but yeah, we had a lot of conversations as a team, obviously as an African-American run firm and 30% of our founders are, are black and um, 50% of our LPs um, are people of color. It's something that we're very thoughtful of and just trying to, you know, not make short-term decisions. We've obviously created a firm where our goal is to create economic empowerment over the next several decades. So in the short term, we're not, we don't plan on changing anything, you know, massively. But like, hey, now that we have more people's attention, how do we better use our platform to help service the mission we already have? Is there anything that we need to adjust um, from a process standpoint? But I think the biggest thing I've seen is whether it be the amount of news people reaching out, the amount of my friends from school who are partners in large VC funds reaching out for advice or questions. You know, I've had more conversations the past four days with non-Black people about Black topics than I probably have my entire life, which is also emotionally draining to some extent. I know a lot of Black people feel that way. It's tiring to have several conversations about your daily life uh, in such a condensed amount of time. But I think at the same time, very inspiring and a lot of hope. You know, I was on Twitter last night watching the protests in Paris, Amsterdam, and New Zealand. And just to see that many people in these countries shouting like, we stand for you, when I know Americans would never really protest for, you know, if any of these topics were happening in New Zealand. So I also appreciate that other countries are standing with us. I've realized that this has become a global topic and it's so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than Minneapolis. And that is what gives me even more hope is that this issue is now becoming a global issue where minorities in those countries are also minorities, but you see a lot of people in Amsterdam, which is a majority white country, protesting for us. Great. No, and, and let's talk about the silver lining. I think a lot of the narrative has been about, you know, some of the negative elements and byproducts of some of these protests, but I love what you're saying because I think one, in essence, the protests are serving its purpose, which is raising awareness around real issues around injustice, racial injustice in the United States. And between yesterday and today, three organizations off the top of my head have already announced big initiatives to bridge this social economic injustice. Bank of America allocating a billion dollars toward this cause. Um, Andreessen Horowitz just announced their efforts to invest in our communities, and most recently, SoftBank, and they went big. They went big. They went $100 million big. And and what's interesting is what they're announcing they're going to do is very similar to what Harlem Capital is doing today. And so I want to get, one, your reactions on this silver lining in particular, and how does SoftBank's $100 million commitment amplify or not, what you're already doing. It's interesting. I just had an interview with Wall Street Journal about this exact question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two sides of the coin. It's, you know, and I've been following a lot of Black Twitter today and their response. And I think a lot of the GPs are split on how they feel. I'm kind of neutral. I'm in the middle. I think it's definitely a positive sign. Sopping already has an accelerated focus on Black founders, which I've done office hours for. So they've been they've been doing this work silently already anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, they have a $3 billion Latin America fund, which is the largest Latin America BC fund. So they've already shown that they've had geographic or racial focus. So I don't think it's inauthentic, which I think some people do. I think from a strategy perspective, I think the hardest thing is like you have to make sure you have a pipeline large enough and you're open access enough where... I didn't know anybody who worked at SoftBank before I spoke on a panel at the SEO conference um, in March with one of their principals. And I, you know, on Wall Street, went to Harvard Business School. So like the majority of people of color are not going to know people who work at SoftBank. And so how do they actually provide open access hmm. where you can have a funnel, right? The BC is a 1% game. You have to see 100 people to invest in one. So unless your funnel is massive, there may be 100 black companies, hmm. but you need 1,000 to invest in 10, right? And so... I think the biggest thing is going to be, can you actually create a pipe, a sourcing pipeline that's open enough and transparent outside of your existing networks and not have such a constrained, you know, we need this to be in these three industries at this amount of traction and you're creating institutional barriers, which have already existed across the venture and LP capital as well. I think that's going to be the real testimony to like, can you actually deploy that capital? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. TBD, I think it's a, 
a positive. It's great for us because a lot of these early, a lot of these diversity focused funds are early stage. And so you don't have many downstream late stage diversity focused funds. And so I think the more later stage, larger funds that can focus on diversity, the better for us who are earlier stage. Um, I'm really curious just to see how they structure their sourcing and diligence process to actually enable them to deploy the capital. Great, great. And now let's let's talk about Harlem Capital's mission and what you're doing. So I read that 50% of Harlem Capital's individual LPs, limited partners, these are the investors in investors for those that don't know what LPs are. So once again, 50% of Harlem Capital's individual LPs are women or people of color, which directly aligns with the firm's mission of investing in women and minority entrepreneurs. Why do you think it's important to not only invest in women and minority entrepreneurs, but also to partner with women and people of color? How else does your company uphold its mission? If you did your research. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, our goal was to raise 25. We were fortunate to hit our cap and raise 40. When we started raising, we knew the majority of the capital itself would be from white people, right? There's just not enough. There's six black African-American billionaires that are publicly known. There's not enough large dollars um, where most people can write $5 million checks over people of color. So we always knew that was the case, but we wanted to make sure, at least from a numbers standpoint, that we would have more women and people of color. And so that was like a big focus for us. You know, when you're raising, for us, our minimum investment was $100,000. There are not a ton of people of color women who can write $100,000 checks. So we did take some checks that were smaller, but knowing that we wanted to ensure that we had some people of color, even you know, $50,000 may not be as meaningful in the scheme of a $40 million fund, but it's still meaningful for that person. It's still meaningful for them to be a part of the mission and somebody who we respected, but like they could add value. And so it was a very conscious thing that we did and you have to be conscious about it because as we get bigger, we plan on raising a larger fund for the next fund, right? The minimums continue to go up. And unless you are being conscious about that, at some point you will have no people of color or women in your fund other than Robert Smith and Oprah, yep. right? And so I think that that's something you just have to be aware of I don't know if we'll like be able to maintain 50% as we scale just because of the way the numbers work, but it's something that we're definitely thinking about and aware of and want to make sure when we make money, you know, the reason we started the fund is because we felt like the fastest way to economic empowerment for people of color and women was ownership. And the easiest way to get ownership is to start your own business. It's been proven time and time again, regardless if you're educated or you're making six figures as a person of color, you are unlikely to close the wealth gap. And so ownership and equity is important. So we felt like venture capital, which is why we went from private equity to venture capital, we felt like venture capital was the best means of economic empowerment at scale in a much faster way. I think the same is true for LPs. A lot of these larger firms, which we're partnering with, TPG or KKR, you know, their minimum thresholds are millions of dollars. And, and so a lot of people of color who are wealthy to us are not wealthy in the scheme of things and cannot get access to the majority of these top funds within venture or private equity. And so I think it's also a fast way for economic empowerment for rich, you know, they're already rich. So some people may say you're making rich black people or women richer, but I think there is a significance to going from rich to wealth and going from being doctors to being able to pass down wealth. Both my parents are doctors and I was always very aware, like, my parents had nothing to pass on to me, but the money they made. And if they're, you know, we would go on ski trips and my parents would always be like, oh, I'm not going down a black diamond. Cause literally if they like hurt their wrist, they can't make money. Wow. Right? Well, like wealth is when you don't have to worry about injuries stopping you from making money. And there's a completely different mindset and difference of like freedom of thought. And so I was just always aware of that. And like the difference of like, okay, I was clearly privileged. My parents are doctors. I'm rich as African-American. We're going to private schools my entire life, high school, Northwestern, Harvard Business School, especially at HBS, as you know, like you, you're, you're nothing. Like it's just like people, people make what you make in a year and a day. And I think it's just eye opening. It makes you realize what you can do as differences when you get to these different tiers of richness versus wealthness. And you can't underestimate that we also, we also need to help people of color who are already privileged to some extent. Um, become more privileged so they can do more things like Robert Smith. Because if you, you don't have a billion dollars, you can't pay off a school debt, 
right? And so there, I think these are just things that we, I think about a lot as well. I mean, that balance of empowering underserved communities, but at the same time, also empowering underserved communities where people maybe already have some privilege, but not to the same extent as their peers. Yeah. You said so much, so many, so many things that I had to take notes of the three questions that branch out of, of what you just said. And I, I'm going to start with the last point you made about helping, in essence, entrepreneurs build wealth so that they can drive change. Uh, the title of our fireside chat is empowering minority entrepreneurs for an inclusive new normal. And that, that term, new normal, gets bounced around a lot in different contexts. And so let me narrow this down a little bit because, uh, you know, we, so we can go deep three, four layers deep with someone with your institutional knowledge. So the protests are happening. We're all emotional and frustrated about the injustices that are happening. At the same time, I feel a lot of us want to go out there and boil the ocean, right, in terms of change. But sometimes, and this is my opinion, and please let me know if you disagree with it. One thing that I announced in our town hall meeting on Monday, given all the protests that have been happening, was, hey, one, we need to stay in our lane. How can communal financial as an organization move the conversation forward? How can we contribute to eliminating racial injustice in the United States? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you just said it, right? One way I think Harlem Capital is doing it is by effectively empowering minority entrepreneurs for an inclusive new normal. So can you go two, three layers deeper in terms of why investments in early stage startups enables you to move that conversation forward, move that is that effectively your swim lane? Are there other swim lanes that we're, we're missing as well as it relates to Harlem Capital and, and you? Yeah, I definitely agree with the lane part. I mean, I think a question we always ask ourselves or ask founders is what are you uniquely qualified to do, right? I think as a diversity-focused firm, we get a ton of inbounds from different organizations that are helping people of color or women. And people often will get offended, like, oh, like, you know, why aren't you going to partner with me? Or why aren't you helping me? We're, you know, solving the same thing. And it's like, we're not just help. Like, our goal is not to just solve all Black issues or people of color issues. Like, our goal is to solve issues for early stage, seed, pre-seed, series A, U.S.-based Black entrepreneurs who are scalable businesses that can return our fund, right? Yeah. And like, and that, I think people, under, like, and oftentimes there's this, anger that we can't do more. And I think, you know, I'm a firm believer in specialization. You know, Robert Smith, one of his favorite you know, like quotes that he has is, you know, like, are you like, what is your specialty? Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I focus on. I think it, it, it serves better. So for us as a firm, we do believe that targeting the early stage is what will lead to eventual exits and IPOs. And so when we started, you know, coming from private equity, we we're like, okay, well, we worked at a black owned firm, ICB Partners, or so did you. But our portfolio had no people of color. And when I was there, we had our first woman CEO. So it's very clear, okay, my skills are in private equity. But if I want to invest in people of color, private equity is not going to be where I can start today. Now, my goal long term is we want to be a TPG. We want to be a multi-asset class firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, we will have private equity. But like, how do I actually build the pipeline to get to the point where I could have a private equity fund on top of whatever my venture growth equity fund and that is you start with early stage capital, you build these companies, you hope that they scale over time. Eventually, maybe either you fund those same companies or buy them out or you cre- they're creating new companies after they sell their first companies and now they're starting new venture capital, growth equity, private equity, back companies. So that's, that's our thesis is that if we can start at the top and create downstream capital, eventually there will be a market for later stage capital. There will be more IPOs. There will be more M&A acquisitions for these companies and you would hope... That the founders of color, you know, the reality is when you sell, you're going to sell your, your minority-owned firm to a majority-owned owner. There are very few black-owned or women-owned companies that can buy you for hundreds of millions of dollars, and so mm-hmm. you have to accept that, and you have to hope that the founders, similar to Rich Dennis of Sundown Brands, you know, once he got bought out, he went and bought Essence, he went and bought yeah. Jay Walker's house, he started a hundred million-dollar fund focused on black women, 
that's not going to happen for every black founder or every woman founder. And that's not the case. Every person isn't supposed to be an advocate for change. Um, but I think that you hope that a majority, I think people of color and minorities are prone to want to change their communities. It's ingrained in us. It's why you see more people of color and women founders who are in ed tech or the space healthcare um, that are changing their communities. That's what they're passionate about. And so you would hope the majority of these founders who do see exits will use that platform and their capital to lead to more future change. That's all you can really do because the reality is, is once they sell their companies, it's probably not going to be owned by a minority person. And mm-hmm. what do you do? Say, hey, keep your company so a white person doesn't own it or sell your company, make some capital and figure out how you want to use that capital yourself. This episode of Fundamental Fairness about empowering minority entrepreneurs for an inclusive new normal is brought to you by Camino Financial. Let me paraphrase what you said using an analogy. Uh, when you board a plane, when pre-COVID, you have to remember you being on a plane pre-COVID. I know it's hard for us to imagine. It feels like a lifetime ago. But before the plane departs, they, there's an announcement. And one of those announcements is if there's you know, high cabin pressure, right? you need to put the mask on yourself first before you put the mask on your child. And in many ways, I think that our way of putting the mask on first is making a lot of money. And I know that sometimes within our community, and I can speak to that as well, that sounds controversial. It sounds mm-hmm. selfish, but I can't tell you how important it is that yes, we be selfish and make money. And then in turn, because to your point, we have an innate nature to give back to our communities, to our families, then we will give back. And I really do give the benefit of the doubt of entrepreneurs of color of doing that. But at the same time, ensuring that you get your priorities straight. Now, I do think what you're doing is something that not everyone can do because you're doing it at face value, which is you're making money and making money by investing in the community. And that's amazing because there is a real lack of capital in investing in minority entrepreneurs. So I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I would just add to that point, like you should also be doing things along the way. You know, so my goal, like I already have a name for my foundation. Like I'm a big believer in affirmations, right? Like, so I, I'm claiming that I will be successful. I'm going to have a foundation for my family, no different than Obama Foundation or, or Robert Smith or Oprah. And I know like what I want to do, like what are the key topics that I want to focus on when I have capital. But at the same time, you know, until that point, I'm going to make sure I serve the community, whether it's through investing capital, using my platform, using my voice, um, encouraging others, speaking to kids, whatever it may be. And so I think that's important that you don't just wait because it's no different than, you know, you're not all of a sudden after 20 years of focusing on your career and focusing on yourself in 20 years, you're not all of a sudden going to become unselfish. Right. And so you have to build in the habit of being an unselfish person. And that's something I think people should should focus on as well. Is like what can you do in the interim? And you know, I also believe that no no day is, is guaranteed. I think, you know, the last three months have clearly shown that for everybody, uh, whether it be COVID or the riots or, you know, the killings of people. Like you can't wait because you don't know if you'll be around in 20 years. And what is your legacy gonna be if you were to die tomorrow? And I think about that a lot. Just like, am I have I done everything I could up until this point? that would make me satisfied with my life. And typically the answer to that is yes. Of course, I want to have a longer life and there's a lot more things I want to do. But up until this point with the time you've had, you know, one of my professors, I don't know if you had him, Stephen Rogers at HBS, he started the first black entrepreneurship class at any MBA school in the world. And one of his quotes is, um, what are you going to tell your ancestors when you meet them in heaven that you did with their sacrifice? Mm. Right. And so that always stuck with me. And as somebody who's half African-American, half Haitian-American, I just, I see, I live it. Like my dad is from the poorest country in the Western world. My mom grew up in Detroit in the 1960s. And so I always think about, you know, the sacrifices they made for me to get to where I am. And then their grandparents made, like, what are you going to do with it? And so I think in this time with the race riots and protests, like, it's the same thing. Like, yes, I'm scared. But in the day, like, onward and upward, like, there's no other option but to have progress because any other option is disrespect to what Obama did, to what Martin Luther King did, to what everybody else did before. So I think it just also 
it's humbling that it's bigger than you, but it's also encouraging that no matter what I face, like the adversity doesn't matter. We've been here. We're going to still be here. It may be tough. We're going to be around and to have that like focus that that sacrifice is what inspires a lot of people of color. And it's what inspires me personally as well. Great. Uh, well, I love that. And I love that positive affirmation element of your advice. And and it's worth noting, I met Henri when he was in his either first or going into his second year ICV. He was dreaming about going not only to Harvard Business School, but also, you know, starting this fund. You know, not this fund. I think a marquee fund in investing in minority entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in the United States. And it was just a dream there. And we had a great conversation. Not only did he do both things that he set out to do, um, when you say not only are you going to make it and you're going to invest behind your foundation, I am 120% confident that you're going to do it. And so for those that are listening in, on this podcast, it works. It works. And you also need to reach out and ask. And now I am the humble cheerleader on the sidelines of Henri, where only it was about four years ago when he was calling me for advice. And so not only that, just tying it into what you actually did accomplish at Harlem Capital, you guys oversubscribed your first fund, right? We did. Wow. I mean, so right now, how much are you guys working with? Um, what stage of companies are you investing in? And how can people learn more about Harlem Capital? Yeah, so we raised $40 million for the first fund. Um, the market was 20 right? So you two... <laughs> wow. <laughs> we, are, we are very fortunate. But yeah, so typically, I would say our check size, we usually do 750K to a million. Uh, we can go as low as 500K. Our sweet spot is seed stage rounds from one and a half to $3 million. We typically target five to 10% ownership. So usually sub $12.5 million valuations. We have not invested in San Francisco for that reason, but we have invested in 11 cities with New York, LA, and Boston being our top three. And then, yeah, besides that, we're just focused on women and people of color who are running US-based companies. We're industry agnostic. We've invested in 10 industries with software, fintech, and HR tech being our top three. But we do not invest in capital-intensive industries like hardware or energy or infrastructure. And then we don't invest in what we call deep tech, which is like biotech, quantum mechanics, or future tech, kind of like a SpaceX, um, where we just really can't add any value to the founders. Great. Well, if you haven't heard of Harlem Capital yet, you now know who they are. And please go to Harlem Capital's website. What's your website? Harlem.capital. There you go. And and learn more and reach out to Henri through their website. Uh, reach out to me. I'm happy to pre-vet you <laughs> before you talk to Henri. I, I'm a proud mentor of many entrepreneurs. I, I always allocate time on the weekend to talk to people that have big dreams. And one day, you, you know, it used to be Henri. Now it's all the, the future Henri. So, so that's great. So let's talk a little bit about before these protests, right? COVID-19, you know, because, you know, before this madness was happening, right? Um, we were already deep into a crisis. <laughs> and uh, wow, it's crazy. And you, you probably heard that Forbes reported that 50% of Black and Latinx owned businesses expect to close their doors if in the next six months, if the circumstances continue. And so we're in, in a difficult situation. So I want to better understand how you think this is going to transform VC. In other words, where do you see the future of VC heading? How does funding diverse entrepreneurs play into COVID-19 recovery? So recessions always impact underserved communities more. The weight crisis was no different from a housing perspective. COVID was, has been no different. You know, 40% of people making less than 40,000 are unemployed and people of color and women typically have lower income jobs. So it's going to disproportionately impact them. And right now there's 40 million plus uh, people who are unemployed. So I think that is the first acknowledgement that these will, these will impact the diverse founders more from a capital standpoint, from 
your family members losing their jobs to now having to support them. I had friends whose roommates lost their jobs. So now you have rent to deal with, right? So it's not even just the business and the venture capital aspect. It's And this is true in general for people of color, which is why there was a study done for Black people who graduated from Harvard Business School being over time still less positioned than their white peers because oftentimes they had more debt coming out of business school. Oftentimes they were helping to cover their families, right? And so there's so many more implications outside of your business where if you are a successful person of color, you, you just have more burden on your shoulders. And so I think that's the acknowledgement to acknowledge that your business may be doing fine, but now you, you burden this mental stress, you have more people to feed. And so I think that's, that's what I think about from how it will impact future venture I don't think COVID will. I think the race protests will do a more of an impact than COVID mm. did. I think COVID was leading to more people turning back into their networks. So you saw women founders getting funded less. Um, nobody tracks by race really at scale besides us. So we, we don't do quarterly reports. We do annual reports. So we haven't done a report to analyze that. But just anecdotally, we share on our Slack channel anytime we see a person of color who raises a million dollars. That's how we build our research reports. And that channel has been very quiet, right? Mm. So I think we, we generally just know that it has decreased, even though we haven't done the analysis yet. And so I think that'll be the case because people are becoming more and more network-driven, right? The Great Recession, you had a recession, but people could still meet people. You have a recession, if not depression, and people can't meet people. And so you have a double edge to want to turn back to the people that you know, uh, which will always impact women and people of color more because they don't know a lot of VC firms. But I think after the protest side, you will now see more focus on this piece, whether it be similar to Andreessen or I saw Mavron made an announcement as well. Now the question, and I saw one of the Q&A questions is the authenticity of it. Is this long lasting? Is it short term? You know, that's CBD. I think, you know, people, I talked to my friends and, you know, we were talking about reparations and all these things like, oh, it never happened. There's no way. And a lot of things have happened that nobody expected. Right. The Great Depression is the reason we have Social Security in the first place. Right. I do I do think COVID will lead to universal health care because when you have 40 million people unemployed, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible for this structure to exist without universal health care. Uh, because people don't have employers paying for their health insurance. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you talk to your family, none of my family members or grandparents ever expected to see a black president while they were living, let alone a two-term black president. Right. And so all in, you know, the Great Recession, when we had a two hundred billion dollar TARP bill. People were outraged. Like, how can that even be possible? We just said $2 billion, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people, people's mindset of like what is possible is so historical, which is why venture exists because we don't believe historicals determine the future, right? And so I think people will be surprised by the changes that will happen from now. And his, history has proven that things have happened that seemed impossible because of traumatic and large scale events such as COVID or global race riots um, where the country is literally burning. Great. What guidance are you giving your founders right now as we move into COVID-19 recovery? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we did was we tried to figure out which companies are likely going to benefit, be neutral, or have negative responses. And we had three buckets and we just literally put them in and these are all hypotheses. And then we did a analysis to understand from a cash flow perspective, um, how much cash you need. Do you need to raise capital in the next 12 months, which is going to be hard? If so... There's three options. You either increase your revenue, you decrease your costs, or you raise capital, right? And so we're trying to create a strategy around preventing uh, the business from growing into business in less than 12 months um, because we didn't prepare ahead of time. I think from a business standpoint, we only saw a few businesses have to pivot. Two of them had to like make dramatic pivots. One benefited greatly from that pivot, and one is kind of TBD where we're going to see how that lays out. Um, and that was focused on kind of the media movie industry, which obviously is yeah. at a zero right now. Yeah. Um, the, most of the other businesses still have fundamental businesses that will exist. The question will be, will the revenue increase, stay the same or, or go down? And you know, time will tell. But I think just understanding based on the current trends, where do I think my business ends up right now during COVID? I think the COVID downturn era is over. And now we're going to see as the recovery happens, you know, what, like where do businesses like long-term who benefits from this telehealth, online education, surprising a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses that are focused on beauty or kitchenware or furniture, like Wayfair is up like 6X. And so, you know, what are like this thing about the trends and then 
and there's not much else you can do. Either you're going to pivot or you're not. If you're going to stay with your business and figure out how you're going to adjust, if you're going to cut payroll, are you going to furlough people? Um, are you going to have to try new um, go-to-market strategies for different verticals? But these are like, it's not like clear answers. It's more, what are the questions you should be asking yourself? And then how do you go along this process of trying to answer them and taking hypotheses and tests to answer them? Because having a discussion about pivoting your business isn't going to happen in one sitting. You're going to need to go out and test things out and figure that out. And so I think don't rush it, but at the same time, be mindful based on how much runway you have. The time you have to actually test this hypothesis, the more runway you have, the slower you can go to make that. But the less runway you have, the faster and more iterations you're going to need to do. Um, but there's no simple answer to it. It's really, we just been telling our founders, like we're a sounding board for you. We're going to ask you the questions and you try to figure out the answers, come back to us. We'll give you our perspective. And this is an iterative process where nobody has ever, even investors who are experienced much more than me, who are RLPs have had recessions, but nobody's had a recession plus a pandemic. This is completely new and a different experience for founders and for investors. Great. Well, thank you for these amazing points. And I'm really excited to get started with the Q&A session. So I'd like to call Kenny Salas, who's my co-founder at Camino Financial. He has a question. Go ahead, Kenny. Hey, guys. This is Kenny. Henri. thanks so much for joining our fireside chat. My question is a follow-up from a comment you mentioned about how recessions impact minorities, especially minorities that are raising money. And because of the networking effects or the limited networks of potentially brown, black people, um, it may limit them. So, And you also mentioned pipeline. So I'm, I'm just curious to know, what are the key factors and challenges for Harlem Capital to build a pipeline in black communities? Yeah, so from a sourcing perspective, 50% of our, our deals come directly from founders, either via email or LinkedIn. So all of our emails are on the website and our criteria is on there. I think we are very open and transparent about what we look for. It's still venture, right? So as I mentioned, still 1% game. So if we see, you know, on typical a year, we see a thousand deals a year. We'll talk to 200 to 250 of those founders and we'll do deep, like real diligence on 40 to 50 and then we'll invest in 10, right? So we're investing in 1%. We're having conversations with 20 to 25%. We're doing diligence on 5 to 10% of the top of the funnel and then investing in 1%. So we're very methodical about our time because uh, time is the most precious thing. But we also are very transparent and try to make it open where people can get in touch with us. We try to produce content that makes it very clear what we look for, industry that we're not necessarily focused on. Doesn't mean, I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned in one of my, late, my recent blog posts is people often get like angry or mad, you know, why aren't you having a conversation with me or whatever it is, but it's, it's not that your business is bad. Your business doesn't fit our model or your business isn't what we're focused on or what we can help you with. Like you want investors who know your industry, who understand your mission right away, who understand your vision. You don't have to explain yourself to somebody five times just for them to kind of get what you're doing. And so it's really a way for us to manage our time and your time. I think founders need to um, be very mindful of their time as well. And like, am I reaching out to people who actually align with what I want them doing because the capital is nice, but the capital is only on day one. It's the next 10 years, which is going to be based off your relationship with the investor. And so we're just trying, we're mindful of that. We're transparent and we try to produce content and do stuff like this where people can have a very clear message of what we look for so that they can best utilize their time. And if there are other people or people reach out and it's not a fit for us, occasionally, if we know somebody, then we'll send it to them as a double opt-in and say, hey, are you interested? If this is something that is more directly aligned with what they do. Thank you. All right. The next person I'd like to call out is Jessica Leon. She's spectacular. Uh, she has a great question. Thank you so much. Well, there's a lot of support right now, uh, which we love and um, just working a lot on like the impact side and investing in founders of color. That's great. But I guess, how do you sustain this momentum? And how do you know what the difference between a fund that is being authentic and meaning what they're saying or posting versus those that are not? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a tough one to answer. And I don't, I, love, and I know people love kind of the authenticity topic, whether it be for 
Andreessen or others that are making announcements um, today or throughout the week. I don't tend to focus on that. You know, people would always ask us for, you know, the white investors we had, why do they invest in you? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't ask them that question. Like, they gave me $5 million and I took it. <laughs> like, I, I'm, they're aligned with our mission. They weren't, you know, to my knowledge, people who were doing bad things, uh, whether they did it because they believed in us as founders, whether they did it because they have a racial lens, diversity lens, they want to invest in diverse GPs or diverse founders, they want to invest in early stage venture. That's up to them. I, mean, I think oftentimes outside of the minority topics, when somebody invests in TBG, like nobody asks, why did you invest in TBG? You invest in TBG is implied to make money. Right. But when you invest in diversity, it's did you invest because of impact? And those are just questions that nobody is asking the rest of the capitalism society that exists. And so I tend not to focus on those as much as long as I believe that the person or the institution itself is one that I would stand by. Because it's a question that I don't think I can answer. I don't think most people can answer. To me, the actions speak louder. It only is a question to me of authenticity the first time. But then if somebody is doing something over and over putting their time and energy, which is more valuable than the money itself. Because for a lot of these firms, even softening, $100 million is chunk change, right? So it's, are you putting the time um, and the effort and using your network and your resources over time? And that's where you'll tell the authenticity. But upfront, when somebody offers you a check, you have no way of knowing unless you've known that person for many years. You may have done two or three weeks of reference calls or whatever it may be. But it's just very different once you're on the other side of investing versus pre-investment. So for me personally, it's not something I'd typically focus on. Great. Thank you so much for the question. The next person I'm going to ask is Alex Ontiveros. He has a really good questions around disconnects between the activism we see in the Black community versus the Latino community. And I'm really curious to, to hear his question in more depth and, and, and get your perspective on this. Perfect. I appreciate the time. Um, yeah. So my question was, you know, one of the things when I went to business school, what I noticed is the African-American community has a very strong bond uh, between themselves and business owners. So they're willing to, you know, take a flyer on buying a friend's product or, or downloading an app, partly based off of the fact they're trying to improve the community. Whereas myself, I think in my question, I put as a Chicano, which means as a Mexican-American, you know, we don't have that connection amongst ourselves, I think, you know, between Chicanos and Latinos and Hispanics and what we call ourselves. So my big question for you was, do you view that as an advantage almost for the, for the African-American community where you're able to advocate on that platform? And then should Hispanics, Chicanos, Latinos, whatever you want to call us, should we be marketing our products and wares to our own demographic first? Should we expand it to all minorities as a whole? Or should we just go after the whole pie right off the bat and kind of lose some of that authenticism that Jessica talked about where, you know, we previously had, we could have targeted just a, Hispanic brand, but instead we want to go for the biggest pie possible. I think that's obviously there's more uh, Caucasians than there are Hispanics. Depends on the business model. So the majority of our investments are not in diverse founders that are focused purely on diverse communities. Uh, like we are specifically not an impact fund. Uh, we do not measure impact metrics. We are a venture fund with impact and we we're very clear about that when we were fundraising. Because we just don't believe, you know, I think you think about who were the first unicorns for women, Venture Runway and Glossier, and our one of our first investments was in Blavity, which is the only investment, one of two investments we have where it's a minority-focused company focused on minority communities. Because in most industries, it's too niche, right? African-Americans represent 13% of the population. Latinos, I think, are 18%, right? And so it's just, it's too small of a segment. And it's like 13% of the total population from age zero to 60. So depending on what market you're in, who you're targeting, 25 to 40 year olds who are making some amount of money in some cities, now you're at 2 3% of the population. That's not venture scalable, right? If you're in a small business, very different perspective, but in venture, 3% of the market is not going to cut a billion dollar company, right? So I think it depends on the industry, depends on the sector, depends on the business model, your asset class you focus on. But we typically don't push our founders to do that. I think that's something that has been a bias uh, that started and is now changing where people initially thought, oh, like, yeah, you're a woman, you should do FemTech or uh, you should do clothes like Stitch Fitch, right? Oh, you're a black person, you should do Blavity or Beauty Care, like Beauty Bakery. But, you know, the largest black run uh, startups are Cadre and Compass, which are both real estate companies have nothing to do with black communities. And that's what we're encouraging is that like people can create things of anything because white people create stuff for anybody 
there's no reason that we shouldn't ourselves, um, particularly for us, just focus on the venture space. I do think that you still need Black-owned, Latino-owned businesses and their communities focus. But I think particularly for venture capital, like we need people of color to be focused on bigger issues that can impact the world, uh, the U.S., and then if not the world. And that's just my personal view. If I may add to that, as all of you know, Camino Financial is an online finance company focused on lending to the underbanked Latinx business segment. And so I get a lot of outreach from minority entrepreneurs. And sometimes they come to me with the question, hey, where can I apply a Latinx spin to my business model? And I, and I tell them, first of all, <laughs> there, there, were, there are very specific reasons from a business model standpoint why it makes sense for us to focus on the Latinx market. And even then, we don't exclude other markets. And so you really need to think through not just leading with, should I focus on this market or go after this market and then build a business model around it? Yeah, that's one approach to do. But I sometimes feel that that's sometimes the only approach or by and large, the approach that I see most often amongst minority entrepreneurs. And I think maybe we need to think a little bit bigger. And then, of course, if it makes sense to create more a vertically integrated focus on a specific demographic, whether it's Latino, African American, Asian American, whatever, then do it. But but there has to be a good reason to do it versus, you know, more aspirational reasons to do it. And and that's what we found at Camino Financial it does make sense. But I do, you know, encourage people to question whether they should be demographic focused or not. Thank you very much, Alex, for that question. The next question I'm going to ask is to Kevin Sunang. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, my question is, uh, sometimes when we start, uh, uh, maybe we may not need like the fund right away bill. We need that mentorship, you know, to get along to, to see where we are in our business, in our project. So I was wondering if is there any way we can have access to some mentorship. I know you guys may be extremely busy, but is there any way we can have some some kind of access to some mentorship? Because sometimes we can we, we can go into business thinking like, oh, we can raise such amount of money, but it's not the case. So I'd rather go and talk to someone who can mentor me and say, hey, listen, you know, at that stage where you can raise some money, you know, take a couple steps back and, you know, review this, review that in order to, you know, to better advance. So what's your thought on that? Thank you. Yeah, so I put a link in the in the chat of a blog post I did a couple of weeks ago for a high level kind of like venture capital and people are looking for how you should think about things. I mean, from our perspective, I generally do not do one-off mentorship because my schedule just doesn't permit it. I think, you know, and even for me personally, when people ask me in interviews, like, who are your mentors? My mentors are my partners, Brendan and Jared. But that's for me personally. I personally get mentorship from being in the trenches with people. And when I'm on Slack 24-7 with Brandon and Jared, and we've been building this for four and a half years, like nobody has mentored me more. Nobody has changed my life more other than my wife and my parents than my partners. My former boss, Willie, was definitely a mentor to some extent and uh, somebody who empowered me to do what I'm doing. But in terms of like the execution day-to-day, most Black male mentors of mine, and we have many who are really well prominent, are not the people who taught me to do what I'm doing. And it's just a reality, right? And so if I'm not in the trenches with you, I can't mentor you on the process. I can give you advice and guidance and whatever that means to some people. But for me personally, like I learned from doing. I learned from seeing other people do. And that was probably the greatest asset for me at working at uh, ICB Partners and Private Equity was seeing what a Black-run PE firm does, not hearing my bosses tell me in a 30-minute call this is my advice, but being in the trenches, actually like seeing, you know, this is your discussions, this is the questions you're asking, this is what you're doing. And that's just a personal thing for me. Other people do get benefits from more mentorship. I think you have to figure out like, what is the focus for you? What do you focus on? How do you learn? And then try to find people who are aligned with that. Personally, I'm not aligned with that. And then I think from, to the question, what do you, what are you uniquely qualified to do? We are not builders. Like I do not build things from scratch, right? I've come from late stage, Equity, I know how to scale businesses. It is the reason why we don't have an accelerator. People often ask us, you're targeting people of color. Why don't you guys have an accelerator? Well, because I can't build anything. So you want me to have an accelerator just so I can say I'm helping Black people? 
who are starting their business up from the ground up. That is no good for anybody. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste of their time, right? And so for us personally, like we know how to scale people who already have existing businesses. We're going to raise a million plus of capital and trying to get to a million AR within 12 to 18 months to raise their Series A, right? And so I think the more focused you are and the, the more clear you are of your lane, the farther you will go, which is why I don't particularly mentor people who are kind of at ground zero because I have no advice. I've never done it before. I don't mentor companies who have done that. Um, so I would say my biggest advice is I sent an article to give you some high-level overview of what venture capitalists are looking for, how they're thinking about it, but then also just reflect on how do you learn if I am to have a 30-minute conversation with somebody once a quarter, what am I getting from that experience? What do I want to get from that experience? Um, what benefit does it do for my mentor? Some mentors will do things just because they want to help. Long-term mentorship often happens because there's a two-way street. And so I think you know that's something to also just think about from a long-term perspective. We're going to continue those. What are the things you're trying to help? And as you scale, what are you doing for your mentors as well to give back? Because I think about that often. Uh, I've built relationships with many of my mentors or sponsors where I've benefited them, whether that be having our firms get combined with their firms and partnerships, etc. Great. Well, Henri, thank you so much. Uh, one common thing that I've taken away from this conversation is stay in your lane. And, and sometimes it's hard to do when the problems inherent in the system are so big. But I think the way you really drive change is not only staying in your lane, but going as fast as you possibly can to the goal. And the focus at Harlem Capital is evident, the passion is clear, and I couldn't be happier to have you on our podcast, sharing the knowledge, sharing the love, and thank you so much. And Thanks, really thanks for having me. Talk to you later, man. Talk to you later, bye. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing. Our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Dana Bustamante. Talent producer, Jerry Cervantes. And our senior producer, Elianette Romero. 